while I was um, away, or the first week I was away, on, I was actually up speaking at a, a young adults um, camp uh, up in Yakindando, uh, talking up there to about 30-odd uh, young adults up there, and it was kind of pretty cool because Yakindanda is my hometown, it's where I grew up, uh, and so it was good to get back to uh, you know where I grew up and actually where I came to faith in Christ. So that was kind of really cool to be in that environment, and I was there talking to these young adults about um, growth in the Christian life. So it was kind of, I went back to the place where my Christian life began to talk to these uh, young adults about Christian growth. And what was also kind of cool about that was just down the road from where we were, we were at a place called Back Creek Camp on Back Creek Road. And down a little dirt track, a couple of kilometers, there's a dam uh, called the CYC Dam. And that's where I was baptized. So uh, there I was there talking to them about, and I found, and what was even better was I got home and I was just doing some cleaning out in the drawer and I found this photo. Uh, that's of the day I was baptised. I'm the guy second from the right. Um, it was kind of cool that all that uh, sort of circled around. I think I'm, I don't know, maybe 18 going on to 19 in that photo. So that was... Um, it really doesn't matter when it was. <laughs> I'm 47, so whatever. You do the maths on, on how long I've been a Christian. Um, when that photo was taken, this is what I was, I was thinking about as I was kind of um, putting this message together today. When that photo was taken, I, I was a young Christian, probably eight months in, in, the, in the faith, if you like, of, of actually accepting who Christ was and applying those truths to my lives and trusting them for forgiveness of sin, trusting them for the deep heart transformation, trusting in this uh, promise of eternal life to be experienced in the here and now. But on that day... I had no real kind of fear or maybe concept of how those promises, how those realities were going to be challenged and, and tested in, in the next 19, 20, 30 odd, whatever years it is. I, I, I had been through some pretty tough times already, had some pretty challenging moments in my short Christian walk. The guy there who was on the far left, uh, Brett Rocker, him and I had a mate who... who who shot himself, committed suicide. And it was actually the catalyst that, that brought uh, Brett to faith. Uh, it, it started conversations between him and I. And in tragedy, grace. And, and, but there's questions in that. But I had no idea of, of, the, of what the Christian life worked out in the, in the everyday uh, was 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 going to be like I was yet to experience and, and live out this relentless kind of counter narrative if if you like uh, that would cause it would come from time to time to cause discomfort in me uh, about my faith and my place in the world that would even at times come and, and express itself in doubt in 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 my Christian life life and and perhaps in the effectiveness of the promises that were attached to that to that confessional belief of new life of victory over sin and all this sort of stuff and then as life goes on as a christian you're like really hmm sort of not feeling that at the moment that on a daily basis i would have to do uh the grace-fueled work of trusting god 
over this, over the broken narrative, over the brokenness of culture, the, in, the brokenness of environments and circumstances that, that constantly come and constantly question the effectiveness of the promise attached to, to, to believing in Christ. Becoming a Christian does not quarantine you from brokenness in this world. It doesn't quarantine you from, from doubt, from discomfort. But it, it does give you a place of, of refuge, a place of trust, a, pl- uh, a hope. You know, I was thinking, you know, if all that was promised was place your trust in Jesus for eternal life after you die, that would be a snap. It would be a disappointing kind of snap, like who would really want that? Well, probably you would, but you, you want it now, don't you? We, all we do, we would just kind of white-knuckle it out. We, we would go, yeah, we can, we, can just, we can just get through this world and, and everything that goes wrong doesn't really matter because when we die, it's going to be great. That's the promise. But that's not the promise, is it? The promise is for now. The promise is for eternal life now, an experience of a new quality of life now, right now, for deep heart transformation now, for the overcoming of sin now in the life that we live, the experiencing of powerfully satisfying joy in our lives now. Not not after I die, but now. And that's what makes it hard. For many Christians, our environments, our internal worlds, our marriages, our children, our health, our addictions, the, the, the counter-cultural voice of culture, uh, whatever that comes to us in, that, that would say Christianity is a farce, you know, science, evolution, whatever, causing us rising doubts around the effectiveness of the promise and perhaps even in the promise itself. How do you know? How do you know? How do you have confidence that what has been promised to you is actually being accomplished in your life and will be fully accomplished you know, in your life and when Christ returns? And that is the whole goal of this little letter that we worked through earlier in the year, uh, 1 John, and that, and that Krista read the last nine verses of us today. Assurance. Assurance to the Christian believer in really uh, confusing and difficult and challenging circumstances that, that you actually do have in your life as you travel along tangible evidences that, 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 that say to you, no, you have a saving faith. Environments and circumstances and countercultural narratives do not change that. The unique and distinctive claim of Christianity is that the the promises attached to Christ have real life time and evidences that actually flow out of this radical new identity. We're not merely just um, behavioral modification, um, but actually what has happened is it's the killing off of what was there and a new birth, a new creature, a, a new way of living, a new person is at work in the world. Again and again in different ways in this letter of John, uh, which Chris had read the last couple of verses to us this morning, John says, you are new. You, you, you are born again. You are a child of God. 
And it's his language for you have eternal life. And eternal life is not a duration of life. Eternal life is a new quality of life, a new reality of life. It just happens to endure forever. And it is experienced now. And John's letter pulses and pulses again and again with these three main evidences. And we'll just kind of go back over them that, 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 that tell us that we actually do have this new quality of life. And those evidences that, that we feel and experience and see in our lives are that we, is that we've trusted a particular belief. And we've known it's true that Jesus Christ, this historic figure of Jesus Christ, is actually God incarnate in the flesh who came into human history to identify with humanity that he would take our sin from us by dying for us in our place substitutionary atonement we call it we trusted that we believed it and that he would rose again that death could not hold him and so because he is raised to new life he now gives us that new life and we believe these truths we know they're true that's not normal it's the work of god to to confirm that in your life you believed it you placed your faith in it and then out of that there's this new approach to life a joyful obedience you actually enjoy doing what pleases god and then this radical love i mean you love people you don't like These are the tangible evidences where we go, man, if I wasn't born again, why would I be sitting here with you and you and you and you? Like, what would bring me here? And there's Collingwood supporters here. <laughs> like, what does that? Sorry, bro. I'm being low. What am I doing? It's all right. We'll find later there's, there's no such thing as unforgivable sin, so I'm okay by saying that. Um, But even so, even with these evidences in place that we can point to, we, we still from time to time doubt. We, we still have questions. And so it's the concern behind John. His pastoral concern is for Christians old and new that even though they have eternal life and even though these evidences are there, they still experience doubts because doubt is natural to us. Faith is supernatural. And so we need to keep pushing back into what holds that in place. John doesn't want us to experience lingering doubt. He knows that that moments of doubt, flashing of doubt will come. So what he is saying in the end here is that we must have an overmastering assurance. We must have something that overmasters doubt, that comes and rewrites a script, a truth over the top of that again and again, a truth that holds our faith in place that we can return to again and again and that we would have strengthening strategies that we can flee to when when this discomfort or when this doubt tries to come and cool our affections for Jesus and our trust in the promises attached uh, to his name. John gets right at it and calls out the elephant in the room. Doubting believers who for various reasons are confused or have questions and insecurities around the genuineness of the validity of of, of their saving faith. Is is their faith a a saving faith? In the context of this letter, that, that, that worry, that doubt, that confusion has been driven by the teachings of these Gnostic 
uh, teachers who used to be in the church and then and but but never really believed and then went out and started to teach a, a different gospel of of oh well that that story about Jesus might be one thing but you, you need to come over here and, and and gain this higher knowledge this higher experience mm, it's hard to define because it's all personal but and so they were like oh well what's true so John keeps pushing them back to hey I'm writing this letter to you because you believe and you continue to trust the promise attached to Jesus. And because you continue to trust, you can continue to have eternal life. This is not a letter that's been written to get you started in your Christian walk, but to confirm you in it. This is all about assurance. And that these things that, 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 that John writes about, I write these things to you who believe, these, these, these things... And he, he kind of mentions them on about 22 separate occasions in this letter. John talks about what they can know. Hard and fast facts. Not I hope so, not I think so, but you know. These things you know. Things like you know you know God. You know you are in God. You know this is the last hour. You know the truth. You know Jesus is righteous. You know you have passed from death to life. You know God abides in you. You know you have the Spirit. You are children of God. God answers prayer and on and on and on. John goes about what you can know. It's not secret knowledge. You actually know this stuff. It's what God has made known. It's his truth to us. Most supremely and uh, concisely found in Jesus. And you believed that. And it became an overmastering truth in your heart. The Spirit of God opened your eyes, opened the eyes of your heart to see truth about ultimate realities, to see truth about your need for Jesus, whereby you trusted it in faith, in the facts about Jesus. And that led to deep heart change in your actions and pleasing God. And pleasing God became an overmastering passion in your life. You organized your life around pursuing holiness. And sin actually became objectionable, even causing grief and sorrow that sees you run back to the cross to find there the Advocate. Who, 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 who forgives you of sin. And it's in his righteousness that we continue. This is what John has been hammering out in this letter. And as you do that, as you believe what is true, as your life is deeply transformed along this journey, you see other brothers and sisters just swimming in that same sea of grace. And your heart is stirred with an overmastering love for people who share the same story as you, who share the same grace as you. And it's not a love that arises out of merely what you can gain from them, but because in Jesus God loved you at your worst, at your ugliest. And that reality becomes an overmastering motive, an overmastering experience for how you now move toward people, how you now move toward other believers who are sharing this same story, this same journey who, as we said, under any other circumstance, might be a natural-born enemy, might be someone we divide against, you know, over politics or race or gender or whatever. John is saying, dear children, believers, the only reason this is true is because you have eternal life. 
The only reason these overmastering truths and, and effects are in your life is because you actually have eternal life. And to have Jesus in your life is to have eternal life and nothing can take that away. Nothing can reverse that. It can't be lost. It doesn't matter what other narrative, what other message might come. It cannot be taken. It's not based in how you feel. It's not uh, attested to by your circumstances, by how prosperous you are, how healthy you are, how, how well your life is going. You, you, it's not a, you know, proved through material gain. In fact, Jesus says you can actually have all these things and still lose your soul. But you can lose all these things and, and have eternal life have your soul the overmastering reality of jesus is a truth that assures the christian that they have a saving faith that no thing no feeling no person no power no no environment no circumstance can dissolve that's what john that's what jesus says in john 10 you know i give enduring life And no one takes it from the person I give it to. The Father brings people to me and I give them life. And no one snatches that away. And Paul echoes it in Romans 8. What can separate us from the love of God? From from the fastening of the love of God into our lives and into our house? What can separate us from that? Like, Like death or swords or famine or somebody with a new idea? Not a thing. John moves on then to remind Christians that the presence of these realities, of this believing, of this knowing, that you have eternal life is expressed in another new reality, a confidence, a confidence to express yourself freely to God. This is the great reversal of the effects of sin, that you move from hiding from God, from from being ashamed or from being angry, shaking your fist at him. You know, we saw it straight away in in the garden, in Genesis, when you read Genesis 3. What's the first thing that happens when sin enters the world? Humanity hides from God. Fear. They're at war with each other and they're hiding from God. But now, in this new reality, we, we, we have this confidence to come and freely express ourselves with God. We move from hiding to seeking God. As a child, you have access. As a child of God, as a new creation, you have access to his ear and his heart. Or as the writer of Hebrews puts it, because our lives are in Christ, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. We, God, is, God is for us now. I love the way Keller has this little, he he says, the only person who dare wake a king up at 3 a.m. in the morning for a glass of water is a child. And that's us. We have that kind of access to God. And even more incredibly, John says, the God of the universe, the king of the universe, hears us in whatever we ask. and, And we know we have what we've requested. We have a God who hears us and answers our prayers. And we can come confidently before him and confidently know that he answers his prayers. Isn't that great news? 
apart from that little sentence in the middle there. You read that? According to his will. If you pray according to his will, he hears and responds, yeah? Hmm. What does this mean? Is it a case of, of, of throw, out, uh, throw prayers out there like with a list of options and sign it off? Well, whichever one, according to your will. Is it a bit like we tend to do, you know, in, the, in Jesus' name we pray these things? Because, you know, Jesus instructed us to do that in John 14. Ask anything in my name and it's, it's yours. Well, okay. Is it like a magic phrase, like abracadabra? that demonstrates to, to some degree, to varying degrees, that we're showing submission to God's greater understanding of what we need. Lord, cure me of cancer. But, but only if it's your will. Lord, I really need a job. I, I need employment. But, but, but only if it's your will. How do we locate the will of God in prayer? Because they're two good things to pray for. Surely that God wants us for them and does. Listen, I think the will of God in New Testament language is contained in his promises. It's contained in his promises to us. The will of God is the keeping of his word. What he's made known to us, that's his will and he will keep it. He will do it. We can ask God with great confidence to be true to himself as he deals with us and our cares, as he deals with our concerns, as he deals with our triumphs and our trials. God, be true to your word. This is beyond good news. It it, it means our prayers are not governed by our limited understanding or expectations or, 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 or or even kind of, <laughs> we might want something that's bad for us. They are not compliant on correct formulas, but we confidently, boldly pray that God be God. And, and do what he's committed himself to doing. And God has committed himself to our joy and his glory. God is faithful and will do whatever is necessary to craft in us a real faith, a a, a faith that can overcome doubting. Now, that's as scary as it is awesome. We can pray with confidence the promises that we find in the Bible. We can pray with confidence that God would be to us as he has promised to be. So our prayer life begins and should be soaked in Scripture. We wrap uh, what God has made known about himself around our concerns, around our fears, around our hopes, around our anxieties and our joys and our triumphs. So your will be done is not a formula, not a magic expression at the end of a prayer, but the applying of the known qualities and truths of God and his word into our prayers, infusing our prayers. And if God has said this, we can be confident as we pray it. For example, Philippians 1.16. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day that Christ returns. God never stops working on us, even in our doubts. He's always at work in our lives to, to carry us to completion. 
or the concern of this letter, uh, as Jesus said, because they're, they're worried they can lose their faith, they're worried that something can snatch it away. Jesus says in John 6, I will not lose any of my sheep the Father has given me. So, so pray, Lord, strengthen our faith. Would you strengthen our faith? Or you can pray with great confidence that God will, in Jesus, forgive your sins. So sin... It's not a reason to hide from God, but a reason to flee toward Him. Confidence. John has made that clear already in 1 John 1 9. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just and, and to forgive us our sins. The, that is the promise. Why is that the promise? Well, because of the blood of Jesus. We can pray in confidence. How incredible that you can come confidently to God and say, Forgive me of my sins and know you've already got the answer. But perhaps at times we just don't have the words. All we have is pain, anxiety. Well, know that the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8, takes that to Jesus and says, Would you affirm your will in the, in the life of this person? They can't even get words out of their mouth. But would you protect them? Would you be their advocate? Would you do what you said you do and be a shepherd to to your sheep? John picks this up in verse 18. We'll, We'll look at it later. We can pray with confidence and we can know that God will do what he has said to do. And, and in all of that, we can, we can, just, we can pray for, 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 for various things in our lives, like, like health and other stuff. But we know we have a God who listens and a God who answers prayer in accordance with his will. But then, and John goes on to give um, an example of what kind of prayer we should be praying. So he says, hey, here, I'll give you an example of a prayer that, that you can pray. And then he gives us an example of a prayer that, Perhaps you shouldn't pray. That might not be that effective. In the context of this situation, it comes to them in what they're experiencing. And that is that, that, that these people have gone out and, 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 and rejected the faith and now are setting up this countercultural message that, that's causing doubt. So we've got to keep that context in mind when we, when we read this letter. You can confidently pray and should confidently pray for your believing brothers and sisters. That's what John's saying here. Those who are in Christ, when they fall into sin, and because they are believers, this is sin that does not lead to death. So be praying for them. Surely, surely that is a given. Surely that's a must in a group of people, in a community of people brought together by Christ that say they love each other. When you see your sister or your brother struggling, don't go to Facebook. Don't go to the Bible study group and start to, to, to gossip or whatever and say, hey, you and Derek, do you see? You know, Mason hasn't been at church lately. Uh, whatever. No, go to prayer. Immediately be praying for these brothers and sisters who are struggling in their faith. Prayer is the response. Why? Because that's the kind of prayer that's in the will of God that God answers. Because God has said he's for his children. And he completes his work in us. And 
losing none of us is another promise. So we know. That's why we're going to prayer here. That's what John's saying. Pray for each other. Pray for each other. In these environments, in these circumstances, pray for each other. You've got a God who's for you. Pray for each other. And we pray for our ongoing sufficiency in Christ and the work of grace in our lives to keep transforming us. We pray confidently for each other and know God will be true to his word. We pray. We don't gossip. We don't condemn. We pray. We pray for holiness, for faithfulness, for repentance. We confidently pray knowing that God will do what is necessary to craft faith in us because that's what he's promised. And then knowing you have given this to God, go and love your brother and your sister. I get that prayer into action. That's the kind of prayer that's in the will of God, praying for each other. And so that's an example John gives. Then John really kind of very disturbingly, this is disturbing, gives an example of a prayer you actually shouldn't pray. He says not to pray for those who sin unto death. Well, actually, he doesn't forbid it. He just says that those people really are at the mercy of God and actually prayer for them is futile. Now we have this another problem. Thanks a lot, John. We kind of just got our heads around how to locate the will of God into our prayer life. Now we have to find out what this sin is that leads to death, or as it has become known, the unforgivable sin. I wonder what that is. And sadly, this has become the focus of the glorious truth that we can pray with confidence that God unconditionally and graciously is healing and restoring and continuing to forgive us. We focus on this idea that there's this unforgivable sin rather than focusing on this other wonderful truth. It's strange what we do. Many Christians have suffered great anguish and still do, imagining that there's some particular sin of theirs that's unforgivable, that they've done something in their path that God could possibly never forgive, that, or, or that perhaps in the future, in a rash moment, they might commit a sin that's just so bad, so egregious that God could never forgive that. Cruelly and irresponsibly, unbiblically, People have said this about things like, like, like my, my mate, suicide. And it's just not true. The mystery around identifying this sin is matched by the fear of it. But listen, and listen very carefully. There is no sin. No one act, no sin that is so dreadful that it sits outside the grace of the cross. It just doesn't exist. As if Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient for something you could do. You're just not that powerful. You're just not that bad. You are bad, but not as bad as the grace of God is good. John does not have a particular sin in mind that leads to death. And by death, John means the permanent uh, spiritual death. Eternal life or eternal death is a spiritual conversation here. 
What he has in mind here when he says a sin that leads to death is a disposition, a persistent attitude of of the denying of the saving truths and promises attached to Jesus. That leads to permanent death. This is the sin that leads to death because by its very nature, it rejects the only means through which life comes, through which sin is forgiven. The atoning death of the Son of God. John is saying, as does the writer of Hebrews, that when a person who has heard the gospel has the response to become so hardened in their position against grace. You know, like when, when we went through Exodus, we saw Pharaoh, grace, and grace kept coming to him. Change your heart, brother. No. That rather frighteningly, and, and, and David Jackman puts it this way in his commentary, John is kind of saying, it is, it is possible to close the heart against the influence of God's Spirit so obsessively and persistently that repentance becomes a moral impossibility. Now, I can say that, but I'm not entirely sure how to explain that, apart to say it's frightening. And in the context of this letter, John is referring to those antichrists who were once in the church, who rejected grace and started another gospel against it and said, here's, here's truth. And that, this idea about Jesus is not truth. A persistent voice in that space is a sin that leads to death. It's a chilling realisation that John is actually saying, it's futile to pray for someone in that space. They're at the mercy of God. Now, just to set your mind at ease, if you're asking, boy, oh boy, I wonder if I actually have done that sin, um, or am I in that camp, or am I still so resistant to God that, that I've moved into that space? The fact that you're asking that question it means no. You, you, you still have a moral compass. You, you, you're still aware of need. You're still aware of wrong. And another thing, whatever we do, This is not saying to stop praying for our unbelieving friends or family. That's not what John's saying here. Because God has promised that he is reconciling sinners back to himself. 2 Corinthians. And that no matter how much they rail against it, Romans 5, even when we hated God, he's still reconciling people back to himself. So that's the will of God that we can pray with confidence. Okay? Now, almost like... John kind of gets the heaviness of what he's just been talking about, about sin that leads to death. He, he kind of needs to follow up with the fact that that's not the reality of believers. They can't get into that space. They have victory over sin. They can be assured of this, not because of their ability to avoid sin, but because of Jesus' continuing work and grip on the one who is born of God which we know by now after John has used this phrase over 13 odd times in this letter to mean the, the, the one who trusts in Christ, the one who's born again, the new believer, Christians. They have eternal life. For the believer, sin is no longer an enjoyable pattern or experience of their life. John is affirming our pursuit of purity in our lives, not the perfection of our lives. 
He's backing over a well-worn path in his letter that Christians no longer find pleasure in sin, but rather an overmastering affection has hold of their heart that they, in response to a relationship with Jesus, pursue holiness. It's joyful obedience to a life in Christ. And John points us to the fact that we don't struggle here alone, that, that it's not up to us solely to be the ones who, who secure this, who protect this, that a greater reality is at work in us, advocating for us, protecting us is the language, protecting our faith. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting sentence there, but the second half of the verse, uh, the second use of the phrase born of God can sometimes cause confusion if we don't peel it back. We might think that it's up to us to protect ourselves from the work of the devil. So it comes down to the quality or the strength of our faith, and that's not the case. But rather, John says, the surety of your faith is secured in the strength and the power of the object of that faith, namely Jesus. So if we, if we look at... Um, that verse 18 there, we know that everyone who has been born again of God does not keep sinning. He's talking about Christians there. He's using the word in the first phrase, uh, a Greek word that, that John regularly uses to describe Christians. And it indicates a relationship begun at a point in the past with continuing effect into the presence. But then in the second phrase that he uses there, but he who was born of God protects him. It's a totally different word that's been used there. And it expresses a once for all fact. It references to the one who was always born of God outside of time and space. And therefore, this second born of God is referring to Jesus. It's Jesus who holds the one who's born again in place, who holds their faith in place. So as we struggle against sin in our lives, we do so with confidence, not despair, that Jesus himself is at work in our lives to convict us of this sin, to rescue us from us and to continue to transform us. We are protected in his grip on our soul. And that is the reality of us, even though it is not the reality of everyone. Uh, I think he's, you know, he says, even though the whole world is in the grip of the evil one, not so of you. You are in a different grip. And an attack by the evil one on their faith, on the, on the children of God, cannot, cannot unfasten that grip. And, and Satan cannot come and fasten his grip onto us which is what that word touch, the evil one would not touch them. That word touch means to, to fasten onto, to remove what was there and to fasten again something new. And he's saying that can't happen to Christians. Be confident. The whole world might be under the grip of the devil, but not the one who knows they are from God. They are under a different reality and we know that to be true because of the promises attached to the person of Jesus that God has made known to us and applied to our hearts. 
Why do we know this? Because Jesus has appeared. He's come into time and space. And the truths around his lives have been applied to us. We know it to be true. And then John finishes this whole letter with this rather extraordinary little command. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. It's a brief but brilliant strategy. Keep yourself from idols. What is an idol? An idol is anything that becomes an overmastering affection of your heart other than God. And all the way through this, we have been talking about how our faith applies an overmastering affection in our hearts for Christ, for obedience, for love. So what John is saying is, is run to that and keep yourself from idols. Keep away from anything else that would seek to master your heart. How do you identify what an idol might be? It's a simple little test. What, what is it? What is it that consumes your nightmares? What is it that consumes your daydreams? What is it that if you lost it, if it was taken from you, you would lose the will to live? What is the nightmare of your life? Kids, marriage, job, loss. What is it that you daydream about? Ah, spare moment in the day. Hmm, Remington 308. Mm. scope four wheel drive but what does your heart desire over and above God that is an idol keep yourselves from idols and the reason why John says to keep yourselves from idols it's a military phrase it means to stand guard to stand against is because these things make poor saviours it doesn't matter what they are Marriage, job, wonderful Remington 308, whatever. They will not hold you in place. They will not save your soul. They will enslave you and disappoint you, burn you into the ground. Rather, the overmastering affection of your heart must be Jesus. Continue to flee to that. Continue to return to that. Fuel and feed your heart with the truths of God. Fuel and feed your heart with the confidence in prayer to come to God and say, God, be God in my life. These are the assurances of our faith that that we've been given.